Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Now, I've got a real treat for you all today, as it's my pleasure to introduce a commander who I've known quite a while and whom I'm proud to call a longtime friend. General Todd Walters last served as commander, U.S. European Command, and NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe. That job saw him responsible for Europe, portions of Asia and the Middle East, the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans. He served in a broad variety of positions and command assignments, beginning as an F-15 sea pilot. He's fought in operations Desert Storm, Southern Watch, Iraqi Freedom, and Enduring Freedom. The general's also served on the Joint Staff as the Director for Operations, in the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force, as Director of Legislative Liaison, and in Headquarters Staff Positions at U.S. Pacific Command Headquarters, U.S. Air Force, and Air Force Space Command. And while no combatant command command is easy, his tenure was incredibly challenging, given that he was in the position when Russia invaded Ukraine. The bottom line is General Walter's professional accomplishments are second to none, and the nation's been incredibly fortunate to benefit from his wisdom and judgment. So with that, let's get the ball rolling. And General Walters, thanks again to be here. Uh, it is just really a privilege to have you and uh, yield some insight into all the things that faced you uh, that have unfolded uh, in Europe uh, over your tenure there. So let me start right out with you know, it was not a given that Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine, and a lot of people were sort of surprised when they did. Uh, it wasn't a sure bet. Uh, but where were you when you got word of the attack, and what were some of your initial thoughts when you saw it unfolding? I was at our headquarters in Mons, Belgium, the headquarters of the Supreme Allied Commander for Europe. And as you know, Dave, I, I, I wore two hats in Europe. One is the United States. European commander and the other as the Supreme Allied Commander for Europe. I was uh, not surprised uh, when it occurred. I, I would just relay to you in this audience, I was very, very proud of, of what the, the nations were doing that represent NATO, certainly what the United States was doing at the time, in, in that from an indications and warning standpoint, uh, the, the postured forces in place had been and continued to do exactly uh, what they were supposed to do, which was to give us the, the quickest, fastest, and smartest picture of what was unfolding. And from a, from a commander's perspective, uh, I, I, had, uh, I, I had no doubt in my military mind what was taking place. I had complete confidence in, in what was unfolding. And because of the preparation that had taken place from a European SACUR NATO perspective and from a United States US UCOM perspective, I felt very, very confident that our posture uh, from a NATO perspective and a US perspective was as good as it could possibly be to, to, to ensure that we were in a position to defend every single inch of, of NATO sovereign territory, if in fact that became a factor early on in the campaign. And I'm, I'm very, very pleased to report since 2016, USUCOM and SACUR and NATO had done a very good job of working with Ukraine's military. And there were numerous operations, activities, and investments that had unfolded from 2016 to the present. And there were 
there were many things that took place in the first 48 hours of Russia's invasion that revealed to me that the Ukrainian armed forces had learned a lot since 2016. Well, that's great. As a bit of a segue, since we started with ISR, um, you obviously had a lot of ISR assets deployed uh, at the beginning and then throughout the, the, the conflict. Um, what did you learn about these operations that may have differed from the way we executed ISR missions in the Middle East over the last three decades? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. And I know it's near and dear to your heart and mind, given where we've been in the past. Number one, states and the other 29 nations of NATO did a very good job of, of researching and understanding what coalitions had done from an ISR and an indications and warnings perspective in, in previous conflicts. And, and what I was most pleased to see was how important it is uh, from an ISR standpoint, from an indications and warning standpoint to be comprehensive. If, if air, land, sea, space, and cyber, to include the information domain, it isn't consistent in its desire to go out and have the best indications and warnings and the best ISR possible, you're, you're in a situation to where you, you're probably going to miss an important piece of the puzzle. And what I was pleased to see, uh, certainly building up to the February of 22 invasion by Russia into Ukraine is in all domains. Uh, our indications and warnings, our ISR in each one of those domains was, was more mature, more comprehensive, and the C2 that was established as an architecture to take those feeds and make decisions was, was far better than I'd seen before, as it should be, because we're in the business, in the military, certainly in the United States, and certainly in the NATO nations of getting better over time. So uh, I also take away from uh, your remarks that um, while obviously uh, ISR was critical in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Europe, given the panoply of nations that are involved, it is also much more uh, diverse, perhaps, is the wrong, is not the correct word I'm searching for, but there were many more elements involved than we'd used in the Middle East. I mean, there many different perspectives, many different aspects uh, than just countering <clears throat> insurgency operations, correct? Absolutely, and as, and as Jens Stoltenberg, the, the current Secretary General of NATO would often say, there is, uh, NATO remains uh, the most successful and and powerful alliance in the history of humanity. And, and when you line up 30 nations and, and they're in agreement about what to do, uh, that, that, that says a lot uh, about what, what you'll be able to unfold in the environment. And, and again, um, many of the nations of NATO have a, have a different view than the United States does. And, and that is a very, very good thing. And th they're all very interested in comprehensive defense. And I'm proud to report that the, that the 30 nations, when you talk about the environment, always consider air, land, sea, space, and cyber at a minimum. And today they're doing a very good job of looking at the environment to include what takes place in the information domain and, and a subject that's uh, very, very touchy 
that there is a nuclear consideration to all of this. And, and, and I believe that NATO is, is doing a better job over time of, of bringing that into their cross check. But 30 nations uh, with the military capability that exists in each one of those nations and, and getting them to go side by side is 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 tremendous with respect to capacity and capability and lethality. Well, I, you, you obviously uh, deserve lots of uh, kudos for the fact that you're running this organization and you brought them these disparate nations with disparate military perspectives together. Uh, and, you know, congratulations for that. And I think that uh, I think that Mr. Putin was a bit surprised uh, that the unity that you uh, fostered and instilled in the alliance showed uh, really set him back. Any thoughts on that? Well, one of the key strategic objectives in the overall NATO campaign, U.S. campaign, and military campaign was to ensure that we create no additional cracks in the armor with respect to NATO unity. And and, and that uh, in itself uh, was something that I believe President Putin uh, wanted to create. Unfortunately, it didn't occur. And when you take a look at the NATO military posture in the vicinity of Eastern Europe, uh, pre-invasion and post-invasion, uh, you, you can see that we've we've comfortably doubled in size with respect to the number of battalion-sized battle groups that possess all domain capability from a command and control perspective, and and certainly with the the recent introduction of Sweden and Finland becoming part of NATO, uh, th th this is an environment that uh, probably doesn't make President Putin very happy and. And, and that's where we are today versus where we were seven months ago. And I certainly adore the trajectory that NATO is currently on. And we're all very, very excited about uh, Sweden and Finland coming on board. And we're very, very pleased to see that the operations, activities, and investments from the military uh, countries that, that exist on the eastern part of Europe continue to grow over time. Uh, and, and they continue to improve their all-domain capability, which is what we need to do. Um, now, this hasn't been the first time that we've seen uh, Russia involved in a fight. Um, we've obviously been watching them in uh, Syria. Uh, any thoughts on what's remained the same, what's changed, and any surprises for you with respect to uh, Russia's military performance? Well, the, the, the people that Russia happens to be going up against are a very, very worthy opponent. And, and, and that's the Ukrainian armed forces. And, and the Ukrainian armed forces have uh, opened up their arms uh, to, to Europe since 2016 to try to get better. So I think that's, that's one of the factors that, that Russia uh, needed and continues to need to bring into their cross-check as, as they do whatever they will attempt to do in the future. I, I think I speak for everybody out there. We, we, we all were a, a little bit surprised at, at Russia's inability to advance to the degree that we all thought that they would. And I think if you go back to some of the basics of airland integration and command and control and feedback from the privates on the ground to their company commander, to their battalion commander, to their brigade commander, to their corps commander, to their field commander, 
what what the Ukrainian armed forces have done and and what the nation's militaries have done in support of that cause from a command and control perspective has has been much better than what I believe Russia demonstrated to us. And, and you know it, and I know it. When uh, you 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 have you have challenge command and control and challenge feedback. If a field commander doesn't have a, a good picture of what's taking place in the environment, he or she is in trouble. And the Ukrainians have done a very good job. And I, I like to keep most of my conversations about what our forces readiness capability is versus a potential enemies. But but the shortfalls that Russia demonstrated in the early stages of the conflict were, were certainly a little bit of a surprise. Now let us transition, just not transition, but have you elaborate a bit on the performance of the Russian Air Force, because I think early on, most people were surprised at their uh, uh, level of uh, incompetence, quite frankly. Uh, a, they essentially have not been able to secure air superiority, not just over Ukraine, but even over their operating area. Um, what happened there? What what is what are your thoughts with respect to uh, the performance of the Russian Air Force? Uh, let, let me flip it just a little bit, Dave, and 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 just say that the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, from an air land integration standpoint, uh, continued to improve, and they continue to improve. I know at this very second, I'm convinced that General Cavoli is, is focused on this. I see it in, in every one of the reports that, that we see in open press every day. And, and this, this beast called airland integration, as you and I have grown up with it, it's, it's a difficult task. And it's, uh, it's something that has to be buried in the DNA of the soldiers and the airmen and the sailors that are involved in the process. And, and if the architecture that I'll refer to as command and control doesn't have fast and accurate feedback at all stages, uh, your, your air land integration is, is not going to succeed. And I, I believe uh, that that's what we witnessed on, on behalf of the adversaries to Ukraine. Uh, simultaneous with that was a Ukrainian armed forces that is, that is, that is well-trained, and, and working very, very hard to improve their air land integration disposition. And from the uh, third week in February to this very moment, we've continued, continued to see a market improvement in their air land integration. And, and with the campaign momentum going in that direction, that's exactly what we need to continue to focus on. So I, I hate to keep harping on it, but the command and control and feedback in, in something is, as well practiced as airline integration that, that our United States military and so many of the other 29 nations that represent NATO's military has worked hard on over the last three decades is, has provided some, some very, very good results. And, and the Ukrainians are working very hard in that area, and I know they'll continue to do that. And, and their success leads to potential failures of their foe, and I, I hope that continues in the future. No, very good. I think those are important points for folks to recognize. And part of it is uh, NATO over the last 40, 50 years, uh, the United States and its operations around the world tend to make some of these uh, issues, command and control, air ground coordination, air surface coordination, uh, not to exclude our Navy friends. Um, they make it look easy. It's not easy. It's really tough. And the differences that you speak to, I think, are very evident in Ukraine. Now, 
sticking with sort of the, the air piece here for a second, uh, there have been some in the academic community that postulate that relative air superiority stalemate that exists today that no one essentially has it is somehow can be extrapolated to the notion that air superiority is not essential for successful combat ops and that a condition of air denial is sufficient. Um, as a senior military commander, not air guy, but as a combatant commander, what are your thoughts on it? Just as a, as a joint commander, I'm always concerned about all the domains. So air, land, sea, space, cyber, uh, to, to include the information environment, you know, you, you, you want to have a degree of superiority in, in each one of those paradigms. And, and, and what we have today with respect to the air domain that exists in the vicinity of Ukraine as it relates to their borders and extends to Belarus and it extends to the West into Europe is is an ability to, to negate attacks uh, from Russian aviation assets on Ukrainian soil. Now, the degree of superiority versus a denial, that's a, that, that's a discussion that, that we can show for another time. But what I, what I will say is that there has to be a continued degree of improvement in, in the capabilities in all domains with respect to what you can do from a Ukrainian armed forces perspective versus what is taking place with respect to Russia. And, and we wanna have that steady balanced improvement in all domains as the military campaign unfolds. And if you bring all that into your cross check, uh, some of those academicians will get into this uh, superiority versus denial capability, and and it comes across as if there's a there's a lack of willingness to improve in this area, and, and that certainly isn't the case. And as as you're well aware of, Dave, as as NATO and the European nations uh, make their contributions and think about the kit and the kits that they put forward. Uh, there, there's more than just a, a military dimension as to, to what goes forward for campaign success. Uh, there is a by, with, and through 30 nations, by, with, and through whole of governments of those 30 nations. And, and a lot of that plays into this discussion that some of the academicians get into about denial versus superiority. And, and the thing to not forget is it's, it's never just one domain. Uh, that, that you have to be superior in. Yeah, I, I believe you, you, you need to have a very, very balanced approach because it is a dilemma for the enemy. If, uh, if an airline, sea, space, and cyber to include the information environment, what, what you're doing from a military campaign perspective takes all those domains into account. No, thanks for that. I think one of the things that um, you help our audience understand, particularly from a NATO perspective, your perspective is, it's not just the United States, you're dealing with 29 other nations. Uh, and so the, the, the points with respect to multi-domain superiority are extraordinarily important. And some of these very narrow, singularly focused issues, some of us in the defense space are concerned about that. Is, is that there are no simple, easy answers uh, and they don't necessarily apply to different regions around the globe. And that, some of the concern is let's not, you know, let's let's not uh, <clears throat> get too wrapped up in one particular example that may or may not be the case. Um, sticking on the airpiece a bit, uh, one of the surprises early on was the magnificent success of how the Ukrainians capitalized on the Turkish TB2 uh, uninhabited aerial vehicle and its success. 
Um, could you give us some insights uh, to the degree that you can uh, of how that unfolded and, and your thoughts on the successful incorporation of that uh, uninhabited aerial vehicle into the fight? So the TB2 is just one example of hardware and software that, that a NATO nation possesses that can contribute to the cause of the Ukrainians to defend their sovereign soil. And that there, are, there are others. Uh, this one probably came public earlier than anybody would have preferred, but it's a classic example of, of what NATO brings to a military campaign. And if uh, you're comprehensive in, in, in your scrubbing of, of NATO capabilities from a hardware and software perspective and comprehensive in, in the domains uh, to where you apply those capabilities, you wind up in a situation to where, lo and behold, here's a, here's a TB2 that can put targets at risk at range with pinpoint accuracy. And it's a tremendous capability that, that has a C2 architecture that provides instantaneous feedback. And I would tell you that, as you well know, Dave, from your command time, most military commanders would, would, would dare to turn that down. And, and we're, we're really, really proud of those contributions on behalf of Turkey. And we're really, really proud of the fact that, that uh, Turkey's contributions were, were obviously endorsed by all of NATO. And, and it certainly helped uh, saving the lives of many from a Ukrainian standpoint in the early stages of the campaign and continues to do the same today. Well, thanks for that. I mean, the TB2's uh, example is a positive one, uh, but I'll, I'll be frank, <laughs> uh, I remain pretty frustrated that the United States has self-imposed restraints on some of the equipment that we'll uh, offer to Ukraine um, with remotely potted aircraft and uh, manned combat aircraft at the top of the list that I think would provide them advantage over the Russian. Uh, but isn't the reluctance of the U.S. to provide these capabilities uh, certain to result in a continued stalemate uh, and perhaps risk the loss of the uh, advantages that uh, to the Russians that they have in manpower and equipment? Uh, again, Dave, I'll go back to this is this is always a, a, a classic case of, of policy running into ops. This is. 30 nations, a whole of government representation on behalf of 30 nations. And it's back to uh, what, what, is, what is best for the military campaign at this very moment. And, and if you try to seek that response from just one entity inside of Ukraine, you'll, you'll probably be shocked to know that if you ask somebody else that represents the whole of government in Ukraine, you might not get the same answer. So every, every day I, I know as, as Secretary of Defense Austin works this issue, and by the way, he's, he's having another comprehensive contact group meeting with many nations at the end of this month over in Germany. And, and he is going after the, this very issue. And, and there will be multiple nations there above and beyond just those nations that represent NATO. And the goal, of course, is to achieve a consensus with that entire group and those nations about what can go in by, with, and through multiple nations uh, being received by, with, and through Ukraine to be effective in the military campaign. As it unfolds today, uh, to, to, to work current ops to save as many lives as possible right now and to ensure that your posture five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years from now is, is best suited to, to guarantee follow-on success. So it's, 
it, 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 that's a terrible response, but it is. No, it's not. It's, it's, actually, it's it, it, it illustrates um, some of the considerations that someone sitting in your chair uh, has to understand and incorporate that may not be as evident if you're just sitting from a, a, a one of those 30 nations perspectives. So appreciate that. And, and I think, Dave, if I could, just uh, over time, what goes in from a hardware and software perspective will change. And, and we in the United States and, and the, the 29 other nations of NATO, that they are all good learning military organizations. So this discussion, uh, I, I've had multiple times in US circles with Secretary Austin and with our chairman, Mark Milley, uh, they get it, uh, they're working. And, and if, if, if they don't put this into their cross check in, in the discussion that will unfold at the end of the month, uh, we, we wouldn't be going in the right direction, but but it is in that discussion and it is being pushed. It is being thought about and, and the considerations from a whole of government perspective in multiple nations is taken into account policy-wise. Very good. Well, the next one I want to kind of explore your insights on is one that I think most people can uh, agree on, and that's the need for sufficient stocks of munitions. Munitions, munitions, munitions. Uh, and, the, and, and our lack of adequate production capacity to rapidly backfill those expenditures. And then if we look at different theaters, uh, South China Sea, for example, potential Taiwan conflict, you look at Korea, you look at uh, challenges that Iran is, uh, is, is posing, seems kind of like uh, the efficiency that um, business experts have postulated with just-in-time logistics is really a sure bet to lose. Your thoughts? I don't. I don't necessarily agree that it's a sure bet to lose. But I. I, I know whatever we're faced with. Well, you'd like just in time delivery with sufficient backfill to always be there when needed. How about that? Absolutely, that's variable phrase. And and as you see, alliances, alliances, alliances. Yeah. Uh, when when you when you have those alliances and, and access to, to more resources outside of the government that you currently represent, you're, you're you're in a better place. And and if you don't bring all of that into the tracking and all of that into the accountability, you you, you kind of have a poor picture. Now what we've seen is all of those nations uh, are facing the same challenges that the United States does, and 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 those points too. Are, are something that I, I know Secretary Austin brings forward in, in his defense circles with respect to the nations that he has those conversations with. And I know at, uh, at the highest levels of the U.S. government, we do the same. And, and Dave, the bottom line is I've never, ever met a commander, and you've been there a million times, that, that is satisfied with his or her current inventory or where the current forces are. You, you always want more. And, and their location and their activity always needs to be tweaked. And I, I know that our, our U.S. service chiefs in the United States of Department of Defense work very, very hard on this issue. Uh, and I, I, I know that our service secretaries do the same. And I know at OSD that it's a, it, it's a, it's a very challenging issue. It's, it's not fast enough. It never will be fast enough. But if we're not working to make it faster, we're making a mistake. And I, I know in, in our OSD circles, we're, we're working to make it faster. You got to continue to define the problem. You have to continue to work the alliance issue so that other nations are, are contributing 
and, and you got to make sure that the push and pull is balanced to where you're not offending anybody. And over time, you just hope that there's improvement in the industrial base area for munitions from a global perspective, and that our site picture in 2032 is better than it is in 2023. And if we're working to make those improvements, we're in a better place in the future than we are today. And, and that, that, that's a hot issue. And if you ask me how much I want, I know that my answer is, is going to shock people, not me today, but in, in a command position. If you ask General Cavoli, he, he's gonna want a lot. And, and basically what he wants, he's, he knows one thing, he's never gonna get it all, but he has to be able to adapt. But it, it is a key issue. And it's, it, it's one that's, that, that's always a reflection of, of, the, of the policy challenges that nations face that impact strategically their industrial base. And you just go back to sequestration in the United States and you, you know that argument better than I do. We, we have to continue to make uh, steady progress and we are. Uh, and I would add education, the American public, as well as the Congress, uh, is the importance of some of these issues because, you know, our security challenges, and you know this better than, uh, than many, uh, are not decreasing, they're increasing. So um, you have spoken a lot already about the critical importance of allies and partners. Our national security strategy emphasizes that. Um, what, and you're in a great position to talk about this, what steps do we need to continue to take to make allied equipment interoperability a reality on night one? That, that's, a, that's a great question. And if I could, I'll just relay the, the path that we've been on NATO military circles. And it goes back to the basics of, of militaries in establishing requirements so that uh, the, the population that that military serves uh, is, is ultimately informed of what hardware, software slash requirements a military is purchasing and for what purpose that it serves in the environment. And, and one of the things that we, we knew we needed to improve upon in NATO military circles was to fine tune and establish military requirements based off the 21st century environment. And in NATO circles, the, the, the last strategy document that we had uh, was, was pre-1975, and it basically referenced somebody to the east called the Soviet Union. Well, in 2019, that certainly wasn't the case. And, and my predecessor and his predecessor, Phil Breedlove, and his predecessor, uh, Stavridis, and, and, and subsequently Scaparotti, th those three commanders before me were very aware of this issue. And, and, and from Stavridis to Breedlove, uh, to Scaparotti, to Walters, uh, we continued to push this issue to uh, establish a NATO military strategy, to ultimately solidify the plans, to ultimately solidify the 21st century requirements so that the nations who were spending this 2% of their GDP on the military actually had codified military requirements that reflected what NATO needed to do to be successful in the 21st century. And, and that process is, is unfolding as we speak. Uh, those requirements are very, very important. And obviously what has unfolded in, in Ukraine, in the vicinity of Russia and Belarus, has, has caused those requirements to tweak just a little bit. And, and if you don't have those requirements, 
you're you're not being fair to the publics that you serve because they 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 deserve justification for purchasing what, what whatever it is the, those nations military need to purchase in the future but there has to be a why behind it all so that strategy to plans to requirements to being able to establish activity uh, that 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 changes the environment to the military side of the house to where you you can further secure more peace is is something that good gains have been made and, and they'll continue to be made and we finally have the the architecture in place to solidify those military requirements in the future and that's a step forward well i think some of the what you described in terms of what your predecessors did and what you continue to do um clearly with the wake-up call of ukraine uh, it's motivated and demonstrated to countries in the area like Germany, uh, like Finland, like Sweden, um, uh, to take appropriate action. Uh, along the same lines, uh, great perspective um, in talking about equipment, munitions, and training operators. I understand that you made some great calls in regard to F-35 coalition interoperability. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you did in that regard? I mean, along the same lines that you're talking about requirements build and so folks understand how to optimize or capitalize on this unique peak of piece of equipment. Well, I, I, I think one of the things that, that helped us uh, with respect to capability like an F-35, number one, it's it's contributions and indications in warning and ISR. It's contributions in command and control, and it's contributions in in mission command uh, speak for itself with respect to speed and range and seeing the battle space and, and being able to inject lethality. That that was recognized by so many nations many many years ago, and 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 getting uh, those capabilities clarified uh, to the publics of Europe. So that they could see and understand firsthand what what a system like the F-35 could do, uh, certainly led to its value in the environment and the proliferation of F-35s that exist across Europe. It's it's growing. The, the nations that are using them are, are are seeing the advantages that you gain in ISR, INW, C2, and Mission Command, and and that doesn't bode well for an enemy of NATO or an enemy of the nations that that possess that capability. But again, it. it David goes, it, it goes back to the capability of the hardware as it contributes to the security and the environment. And there, there are other examples of that, but the, the system kind of spoke for itself and, and nations are smart. And when they've got a, a vehicle uh, that has that kind of reach that contributes in all three of those salvos that I discussed and is very, very difficult for an enemy to see, uh, that, that's a tremendous capability that that is, as you will know, it's it's NATO interoperable today. And as you take a look at the nations that are formulating those requirements, uh, there, there are other nations, and we all got the word this morning about uh, what Canada decided. Eighty-eight, and 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 your, yeah, you know, there, there it is. Yeah, very good. No, that's good, and I'm smiling too because it's so uh, heartwarming to hear you discuss uh, not the lethal aspects, but the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and situational awareness building and command and control elements that the F-35 brings to the table. I mean, uh, for 20 years, I've been telling folks we're gonna value these assets, not because they're fighters, but because they can penetrate contested airspace, collect information and share it with the rest of the combined and joint force. 
to enhance situational awareness. Um, so that's great news to hear. And like you said, it's obvious because the number of nations that are buying this airplane. Uh, and that's really its key strategic value. Now, while the fighting has been dominating the headlines, uh, a key part of your mission was checking potential Russian aggression. We talked about this a little bit beforehand. Uh, if they happen to spill out over their operations in Ukraine uh, into NATO. So walk us through how you approach those tasks and how air power plays a unique role in doing that. Well, number one, there, there needed to be a military posture shift from a NATO perspective uh, that, that started in, in the fall of 21 with four battalion-sized battle groups that were in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. And we were all very, very aware of the fact that in, in Southeastern Europe, in Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Slovakia, we probably needed to, to put the same posture in place to ensure that from north to south along the, the Eastern European front, uh, we were in a position uh, to, to where we could better defend uh, in all domains every inch of, of NATO property. And, and that posture shift was, was not simple. It, it needed to occur quickly. It needed to have the blessing of all 30 nations, and it needed to have the staying power uh, to, to benefit European and NATO security, not just in 2023, but in 2035 to 2055. So all of the moves that, that were made to the point where I left uh, the, the, the service at, at shape were, were geared in that direction. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to note that in air, land, sea, space, and cyber, we've, we've made improvements in all of those domains, not just in those eight nations that represent the Eastern portion of, of Europe, but in all of the, the nations that are supporting that cause throughout the rest of Europe. And when you, when you talk about comprehensive defense, you, you can't just look at Russia, Ukraine. You, you've got to be cognizant of what Russia is doing with everybody else on planet Earth and, and where they're thinking about proliferating other resources and, and who their allies are. And, and Europe has a southern flank and it has an Atlantic flank and it has a northern flank. And, and all those need to come into consideration in, in all of the domains uh, merit protecting. But NATO better uh, possesses a capability in all domains to defend their sovereign soil today than they were six months ago. And I'm convinced based off what I've seen that we'll be in a better position six months from now and further on down the road. As you're well aware, uh, NATO, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it is the most comprehensive and unique alliance in history. Um, the United States have global responsibilities and we don't have those kinds of alliances in other places around the world that are important. Um, we also know that our Air Force has been declining in capacity um, over the years, having less than half the combat fighter squadrons we had during Desert Storm today. And you look at some of the realities, because of the age of some of our forces, um, we've had to sunset them. So if you look at the case of Kadena, we're having to send fighters out of Spangdalem, where there's a hot war going on in Europe, over to Kadena to backfill and assure our partners and allies there, um, we've got a capacity deficit. 
doesn't the Air Force need and require more assets to increase and overcome this capacity deficit that it has? Well, uh, capacity is, is a tremendous attribute to, to overall lethality. Uh, readiness is a huge part of the equation. And, and, and I, I just won't speak for, for just the Air Forces. If, if I were to ask the Chief of Staff of the Army the same question about Patriots, and if I were to ask the CNO the same question about Naval TAC Air, it, 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 there, there, is, there is always a challenge here. And, and as a combatant commander, my biggest concern, unlike a service chief, is the readiness disposition of those forces. So fortunately, uh, with the numbers that we have that are challenging, we still possess the, the readiness capability to, to swing Spangdalem jets over to the Pacific and, and perform, which, which is a great demonstration of, of readiness. And, and one of the things that we need to continue to do because we're never ever gonna get the numbers that we would prefer. I believe that we still need to continue to strive to get more numbers. But as we work through this problem set as a United States of America, we, we have to teach allies and partners uh, how to work through the same problem set. And if you can get more nations that can demonstrate some of the capabilities and qualities that we demonstrate in our United States military, uh, with your allies and partners, uh, from a global security perspective, you're, you're in better shape. And as you well know, uh, in the UK, they're often asked to swing some of their F-35s to the Pacific region, and they've done. They've done that. And they've, they've probably improved a little bit at that because of what they learned from us. And we've improved at doing that from what we've learned at them. But you're exactly right, Dave. Capacity's always got to be part of the discussion. Uh, but as most commanders would tell you, they, they can never get enough. Yeah, I, know, I understand. But I want to remind you and our audience that for the last 30 years in a row, the United States Air Force has received less total obligational authority than either the Army or the Navy. Um, and as a result, we're the oldest and the smallest ever in our history. So we want to execute the demands of the national defense strategy. We've got to reverse that decline. So I'll i just leave it at that. And uh, I think it's extraordinarily important that uh, uh, the Air Force, which is critical both in NATO as well as the Pacific, uh, is, is, is a service that is in significant need of resources to recover from its geriatric status. Well, I'll just add, Dave, that's one more reason that field commanders need to stay laser focused on the readiness of all their force elements. And then that's something that yeah. is passed on from the Secretary of Defense to all of us often, and I think he's right. Well, very good. I want to make sure that we leave plenty of time for questions and answers. So um, we've got about uh, 16, 17 more minutes. So what I'd like to do is uh, open the, uh, the, uh, uh, the session to uh, our audience. So if you all could uh, either uh, ask a question by using the raise hand function, um, or you can text in your questions. Um, we'll go ahead and jump right in. Let's start um, with my good friend, Teresa Hitchens from Breaking Defense. Teresa. Hi there, thanks for doing this. Um, my, I have a kind of two-part question. Um, the, the first is about the new NATO strategic concept that was recently approved, well, approved last year. 
Um, and whether it's it's kind of vague, it's a very top level strategic concept. And I wonder, General Walters, if you um, thought that there needed to be a follow on that was more like a, say, a military strategy to implement that strategic concept. And whether that you still believe um, NATO should, as a part of its military strategy, permanently station land and air forces in Eastern Europe. Thank you. Uh, Teresa, there, there is a precursor uh, to the NATO concept, and it is the NATO military strategy, and there's actually a precursor to that. And, and subsequently, what will occur are graduated response plans that take into account the NATO military strategy, the NATO strategic concept, and, and regional plans. And, and, and that allows for better alignment with military activity as it connects to whole of government activity throughout NATO. And I think that's very, very important. And, and that, that, is, that is certainly the case. And, and I, I had a hard time hearing your second question, Teresa. I, I'm sorry, could you repeat that real quick? Sure. Back in March, before you retired, you um, told the House and Senate Armed Services Committees that you believe that NATO should permanently place land and air forces in Eastern Europe rather than doing the rotational thing that they've been doing in the past. And I wondered if you still believe that that should happen and if you could elaborate on your rationale for that. Thank you. Uh, Teresa, I think the context of the question in the hearing uh, had to do with permanent and rotational. And, and my response was yes to both. And then uh, for, from a NATO perspective, it, it, it has to be a mix of nations that contribute to that cause. And as you've heard from me many times before, there's, there's, there's never one right balance. But what, what, I, what I certainly agree with is from a posture perspective for NATO militaries, we, we needed to construct battalion-sized battle groups in Southeastern Europe with the same architecture that we had in the Baltics. And, and that is more in line with a, a, a semi-permanent basing, if you will, because as you know, Teresa, we rotate forces from nations into those battalion-sized battle groups today in, in all eight of those countries. That, that process, uh, I believe was the one I was referring to. And I, I, I contend that that is something that we will probably see in Europe and it will probably remain for a very, very long time. Thank you, sir. Okay, next up is uh, Pat Tucker. Pat? Hey, thanks for, for doing this, really appreciate it. Um, you've testified uh, on Russian use of hypersonic uh, missiles sort of emerging, uh, not fully, I feel like, uh, developed hypersonic missiles in the Ukrainian theater. Can you talk about how you've seen their use of uh, those missiles change over the course of the conflict? And do you think that they're beginning to accommodate the Russians are in any way their lack of precision guided munitions through other means? How are you seeing their uh, precision-guided capabilities change over the course of the conflict? Are they adapting? Well, Pat, I, I've seen less over the course of the last six months because I haven't had access to the resources that I had when I was still on active duty. But uh, in, in open press, it, it is my sense that the degree of activity for hypersonic testing on behalf of the Russians is 
has, has been more challenged in the last several months uh, than we certainly saw in, in the previous uh, months and years to the left of that. And I, I think that's just a reflection of the challenges that Russia faces with respect to the activity in, in Russia and Ukraine. I, I haven't seen any evidence uh, of an improvement on precision, but I, I haven't had access to some of the resources that I would prefer to give you an accurate call on that. But what I want to comment on, Pat, that's most important to this this issue is what 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 is what what are the potential nations that that are at odds with Russia with respect to hypersonics doing to ensure that in the future uh, we possess a better deterrent capability, and and, and that goes back to the, the nations uh, being very very willing to commit uh, to comprehensive command and control in all domains, so that we can detect change sooner rather than later, and, and we can track at, at, at all altitudes and at all speeds. And this is something that I know that uh, NATO and I know that the U.S. continues to work on. And I, I think we'd be wise to continue to focus in those areas. And, and I think that we are. Okay, just real quick, can you comment on the lack of precision munitions for Russia? Um, you know, we, we see them hitting civilian centers and things like this as they just sort of fire at everything. Uh, can you talk about what effect that overall has had on them militarily? Uh, and has the just mass, of course, they've been inbuilt to bear, uh, uh, compensated for that in any way? It's, it's terrible. Uh, to, to, to not have uh, precision capability is, 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 is just uh, terrible from the standpoint to where it, it puts more lives at risk from a Ukrainian perspective. And, and, and that is something that I contend from an information standpoint, we, we need to continue to work on as, as a coalition to, to drive that point home. But it's, uh, it's just uh, tragic in 2023 uh, the, the, the lack of precision that certain nations have. And I, I can't speak for all the incidents that have occurred across Ukraine, but, but in general, uh, the, the, the Russian armory displays a, a degree of lack of precision that is, that is appalling uh, in 21st century warfare. And, and I think it's, it's something that we need to continue to dig at with respect to the information environment. Thank you. Okay, Brian uh, Everstein. Um, as the conflict has gone on, we've really seen the U.S. kind of get creative in some of the aid that has been able to provide. Um, I'm thinking of some undisclosed, previously undisclosed munitions like the Phoenix Ghost, um, even like low-cost threat emitters to confuse Russian pilots, integrating harms onto MiGs, etc. Can you kind of, to the extent you can, get into these discussions on how the U.S. has been able to get after some of these bespoke requests that Ukraine wants without unleashing the gates and giving aircraft and larger um, uh, munitions being sent to Ukraine. Thank you. Brian, you, you, you point out a, a couple of examples and there are numerous others. There, there is a, a huge appetite on behalf of the United States and certainly uh, the, the NATO nations uh, to, to improve the inventory that goes in in support of the Ukrainian armed forces. And as you well know, there are, there are multiple sessions that the U.S. host uh, in Europe uh, to have nations come forward and talk about these very issues. And the, the, the first thing that you have to do in, in this environment is be willing to listen to, to the requirements and the needs, certainly of Ukraine, and you have to be willing 
to listen to the inputs of the 30 nations of NATO and other uh, global nations that are willing to contribute to the cause. And at the end of the day, come up with a blueprint that is accommodating to NATO, accommodating the nations individually, and certainly accommodating by, with, and through Ukraine. And, and over time, the hardware and software that goes in will probably change because the conditions in the environment will change. And, and I, I would just contend that today, we, we do a very good job in those meetings, and Secretary Austin will host one that I talked about earlier with Dave Deptula towards the end of February uh, or the end of January to, to take into account all, all domains, air, land, sea, space, and cyber with respect to the, to the kit and the kits that go in to, to ensure that we, we are achieving a posture in the right place at the right time that, that gives the Ukrainians the best opportunity to succeed. Okay, Peter Wolf. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we got you. Thank you very much. Uh, sir, I'd like to ask you, if in the event, God forbid, Sweden does not join NATO because of obstacles uh, put forward by some of the uh, countries in NATO, what level of integration militarily nevertheless will occur between NATO and Sweden? Peter, uh, the, the, the degree that we've, we've integrated with Sweden over the course of the last decades has, has, been, has been large. I, I think that will continue. I'm very confident that uh, Sweden will be part of NATO uh, very, very soon, uh, that that process is ongoing. But it's, it's my contention that the operations, activities, and investments that NATO's militaries have engaged in over the course of the last several decades with Sweden will, will continue to grow. Uh, whether or not they, they, they join NATO, I, I, I believe that when, when they assess uh, finally to NATO, uh, that there'll be a degree of alignment and transparency that's at the highest possible level militarily that, that will help improve conditions. But as we've done in the past, uh, lots of activity with Sweden's military uh, over, over the last several years, that, that will continue, uh, no doubt. Joe Gould. There, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, with respect to Russia and Ukraine at the moment, um, I know we touched on it, and maybe this dovetails a bit on um, Pat Tucker's question, but but you know, how do you see the situation at present with regard to um, air superiority versus air defense um, on both sides? I I believe that from a NATO military campaign perspective, to ensure that the, the nations of NATO possess the capability to defend every inch of their sovereign soil that the NATO military posture is improved. Uh, that improvement has to be mirrored by the improvement of the Ukrainian armed forces in all domains, not just air, uh, to be able to better defend their soil and better fight. And I believe that the, the input that comes from the nations to include the United States has to take that into account, not, not just in the air domain, but in all domains. In, that, that campaign momentum uh, that, that Ukraine currently has in, in all domains has to steadily improve over time. We, we do not want to see any setbacks. And 
and there's always going to be a, a challenge. And, and as we all know, there are activities taking place in, in the Donbass as we speak that, that are challenging for the Ukrainian armed forces. And, and we've, we've seen them combat those challenges with a degree of improvement over time that needs to continue. But that, that steady improvement is a must, not just for the Ukrainian armed forces, but that steady improvement needs to continue with the NATO militaries that are protecting NATO sovereign soil because those, those two activities, NATO and Ukrainian, when linked together, uh, create obviously greater dilemmas for the foe in the region, which happens to be Russia. And, and that needs to continue. There was a point at which we were, um, there were you know, sort of live conversations about providing Western aircraft to Ukraine and uh, we don't hear as much about that now, but do you think that that, is that a conversation that's ongoing? And, and if not, could it reopen? Thanks. I think it certainly could reopen. I, I know it's ongoing, it should be. And again, uh, the, the changing nature in the environment will, will drive uh, the input of hardware and software. And I think this is just part of the overall strategic discussion that, that we need to continue to entertain. And I, I'm confident that we are doing that. Okay, let's switch to uh, one of the uh, text questions. There are a bunch of good ones. Um, one of the ones that has uh, been uh, sent in is uh, effectiveness of uh, Russian hypersonic missiles. Uh, that, that question came to you earlier in the context of the use, but what difference have they made, if any? Well, they... they, they... Relative to their unique nature of being hypersonic. Yeah, I, I just think from a from a range perspective and speed perspective and detection perspective, uh, it, it, it forces us to ensure that our indications and warning architecture is compatible to see it uh, before it becomes an impact. And our, our response from a lethality perspective has to be fast enough and long enough and accurate enough to ensure and, and those activities are ongoing. The good news is we have a lot of brilliant people in this country. We have a lot of brilliant people in our NATO nations, and they're all working very, very hard to continue to improve our indications and warnings architecture from a hypersonics perspective. And, and that that is ongoing and needs and will continue. Very good. Um, John Turpak, are, are you on? Uh, I understand you've got a question uh, for uh, uh, the general. Actually, he's not on with a raised hand, but here's his question from text. Can you tell us what are the objections to providing Ukraine with combat aircraft? Senator Joni Ernst recently said Congress would support this to help suppress Russia for another 10 years or more. So the, the again, this, this goes back to, uh, to policy issues by, with, and through the 30 nations of NATO, by, with, and through the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, the demand signals at the time, and when it's uh, when it's time, uh, we we have to be prepared to make those contributions with combat aircraft. And and it is it is my belief, based off capabilities that exist in the environment, that uh, we're we're still challenged from a timing perspective to make this move as we speak. And again, uh, it's it's thirty nations of NATO. Uh, ensuring that their solidarity is never compromised. And, and that is part of the overall strategic campaign. And, and, and that comes into play uh, when you start to pull this question apart about what is actually going in and, and what is holding off for the time being. 
Well, thanks very much for that. And ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of this Aerospace Nation uh, event. Uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, General Walters, for being with us here today. It's just been magnificent. And from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute, um, we wish you and everyone else in our audience a great aerospace power kind of day.